consider myself a grief warrior and a grief activist. And to remember that, why do we grieve? We grieve because we love. And we lost something that we love. And so to withhold grief is to withhold the heart. I believe that what we do as women in the privacy of our own minds is the single greatest determinant of our lives. I'm Emma Title, and you are listening to the Women Today podcast, where we are unpacking and investigating the new female psychology. I am a psychotherapist, coach, and teacher who is passionate about women's internal and external freedoms. You are in the right place if you want to hear in-depth stories about women's lives, On this show, we dig deep into the minds and hearts of women to understand what it really takes to heal, to grow, and to experience psychological freedom so that we can create lives of authenticity, fulfillment, and contribution. This is a place to receive nourishment, inspiration, and guidance as we continue to show up for the complexity and nuance of our lives as women. I'm so glad that you're here, and let's get started with today's episode. Hi, and welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the podcast. I'm really excited today to be diving deeper into this month's theme of grief and loss as initiation. And when I was thinking about the women I wanted to have on the show surrounding this issue, Meryl Rothis was one of the first people that came to mind. Meryl is a beloved friend of mine and an incredibly powerful, seasoned, and effective psychotherapist. She has a really rich background, which I will share with you in a moment. But on a more personal note, she is a woman who I deeply respect and admire. And she is someone who I have witnessed firsthand go through unthinkable loss and endure really, really life-altering amounts of grief and loss. She is someone who I view as a true warrior, someone who has earned her battle stripes and scars and who chooses to use her personal experiences of grief and loss and allow them to inform how she shows up, how she serves, and how she contributes in the community at large. So I couldn't be more thrilled and honored to have Meryl here today sharing both her personal stories as well as her multi-decade-long experience as a psychotherapist. Meryl is a licensed psychotherapist. She is a licensed mental health counselor, a board-certified and registered art therapist, a certified Hakomi therapist, and a grief and trauma specialist in private practice here in Boulder, Colorado, since 2001. She braids together the wisdom of her Buddhist practices Over the past 20 years, her shamanic studies and the wisdom of the body in tandem with creative arts therapies. Meryl has created somatic art therapy, her method of synthesizing somatic psychotherapy with art therapy, mindfulness, and the transpersonal. Meryl is a clinical supervisor for psychotherapists worldwide and a graduate school art therapy and counseling psychology educator. She was visiting core faculty in the graduate art therapy department at Antioch University, Seattle, and adjunct faculty in the graduate art therapy department at Naropa University. 
She has presented her clinical work nationally at conferences and as a published writer, most recently authoring a piece called Cultivating Aliveness After Pregnancy Loss, Somatic Art Therapy, Ritual, and Grief Work in the book Childbearing Issues and Art Therapy. A shamanic practitioner and ritualist, Meryl offers her shamanic skill set to clients and has facilitated countless rituals and life passages, including births, deaths, and marriage and commitment ceremonies. Her rich spiritual world is informed by her practices in Tibetan Buddhism, Judaism, North American core shamanism, and the African Dagara tribe, as taught by her teachers Maladoma Somme and the late Saban Fusome. She is currently writing a teaching memoir on being a mother without children. She spent years trying to achieve motherhood, has held life in her body, experienced multiple baby losses, and has no living children. A true grief warrior, her grueling passages with grief and loss have positioned Meryl to serve clients worldwide with a social action mission to normalize the natural expression of grief. Meryl is an active visual artist. Meryl loves creating art where she experiences deep inspiration and flow. So as you can tell, Meryl is an incredible, multifaceted, multi-talented, multi-passionate woman. She has so much to offer both as a seasoned professional and through her own experiences of her life journey. I'm so honored to have her here on the podcast to share her voice, her wisdom, and her stories. And I hope you find them to be an incredible companion for you wherever you are on the path. Meryl, welcome. Hi, Emma. Thank you. I'm so incredibly excited to have you here today, and I'm also nervous. (laughs) Oh, me too. Yeah, and it just, what strikes me is, I don't know what I'm nervous about, but I think it has something to do with what I know about your power and your Mm -hmm. wisdom and your story. Mm -hmm. It's a big story, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, I, before we get into any of it, I just want to thank you for showing up here today and being willing to share your story and all of the incredible work that you do in the world and the wisdom that you carry with our listeners. It's a huge opportunity and I, and I'm really honored that we get to have you in this way. Thanks, Emma. I feel completely honored and touched to be included in what you're up to in the world. Thank you. So I'm wondering if we can kind of ease into things here and if you'd be willing to start out by sharing with us about some flavors of who you are and the work that you do in the world and all of the different things that you weave into that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I would say who I am in the world includes the work that I do in the world. And I've often been asked the question as, as we get asked, what do you do? And right in our culture, that usually means, what do you do for money? What do you do for work? And my answer is often, I get to love people. 
I get to love people for my work as a psychotherapist. And I think many of the people who know me would also agree that that is one of my superpowers and personal relationships too, is something about love. But in my, in my day job, so to speak, I've been a psychotherapist for about 20 years now, as well as an educator of psychotherapists in various graduate school programs. And I was trained in art therapy. My graduate work was in art therapy and transpersonal psychology. And I also have a really strong belief in the healing powers of the body. As a somatic therapist in various modes of trauma healing, grief work, and overall well-being through the body. And then I also weave in a tremendous amount of the nervous system. I'm a total brain geek. Nervous system, the brain, and mindfulness and meditation. I've been a practitioner of Buddhism and the Dharma for a very long time, and I bring a lot of that work in with my clients as well. So that is one part of my job. And then the other shingle that I, that I hang, so to speak, is as a shamanic practitioner. I love hearing all those different facets. And, and I love the umbrella of love because it just feels so, so true and so accurate to you, knowing the capacity of your heart. And, mm-hmm. and I just know how many varied ways you show up in this community and far beyond this local community with your love. So thank you for the amazing work you do. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Can you share with us more about the shamanic practice that you do and how that came into your life and, and how you support other people with it? Yeah, you know, um, it's such a big subject and I obviously won't be able to get to all of it, but I will say that the way that I often explain shamanic work to people, shamanism is um, a practice of, quote, direct revelation in working with the unseen realms of things. And it's been found in really every culture across time. I describe it often as, you know, you can be sitting at the beach looking out at the ocean, for example, and maybe you see a bird fly by or a dolphin or if you're lucky, a whale will breach. But there's an entire teeming environment, world, going on under the surface of the ocean that is just invisible to the human eye. But we don't doubt that it lives there. We don't doubt that there is life. And there, similarly, in my belief system, is that there's an entire world of helping spirits that which is unseen, whether it is our ancestors or other helpers that are there on our behalf to guide us through life. So in my practice, I work with the helping spirits in the unseen realms to offer healing and divination to people. And really how I came to that, I would say it's an entire life trajectory, but the kind of the pinnacle moment was my first year in graduate school at Naropa University, where I had what Stan and uh, Stan Groff and Christine Groff called a spiritual emergency, which could have easily been looked at as a psychotic break. I had some version of a like a very profound 
psychological transformation that was not pretty. And my entire being was getting rocked. I was sensitive to light and sound. I was having what might be called in Western psychology delusions. Um, I was being visited by images that were frightening. And thank God I had a therapist who really was able to discern that my ego was intact, that there was something trying to be birthed in me. Wow. And she stayed the course with me and suggested that some of the work I do be with a shamanic practitioner. And that was it. Boom. Thank you for sharing this, Meryl. I didn't know that you had that experience your first year in graduate school. And I mean, it makes so much sense to me, but it also, it, it kind of plants the seed further back than I actually realized in terms of your shamanic work. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask you, believing or feeling such faith and certitude in the unseen realms, is that something that predated that time and experience, like something that came with you from your family or your childhood or something that emerged in that early adulthood time? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, I remember sitting in a circle in graduate school and everybody was going around the room and saying what their first transpersonal experience was. And I literally whispered to the person next to me, what does that mean? <laughs> and, you know, people were sharing very profound things that happened that to many people in this world would think is crazy. And it got to me and I said, well, I had imaginary friends and, and, and perhaps that was about it. I also remember as a very little girl hearing three older women's voices all the time. They would whisper, but I could never hear what they were saying. But that world was never cultivated in me. And therefore, I think like many children, if that world of the imaginal of imagery is not cultivated, it's going to go away. So I think it was nascent in me all the time, but there was really no surprise that I ended up in a transpersonal psychology program, which allowed the true me to come bubbling out. And in this case, not in a pleasant way, but that's so much of my journey is learning through the uh, intensity. (laughs) Yes. And I'm, I'm just thinking of you as you know, hearing these voices and just that fine line, as you're saying in Western culture, where it's like we could easily slap a label on that. Exactly. But then knowing who you are now and what your gifts are as an adult, it's like this the signs mm-hmm. were there. But if you don't have that support, how confusing it could be. Exactly. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that, Meryl. And it feels like a perfect segue you know, you learning through intensity um, because you, whenever I think of a woman who has courage, endurance, uh, power, and also capacity, I think of you. And I think of you often because you have been through the ringer in so many ways. And I'm just in awe of how you meet it every single time. Yes, I, uh, I would agree with that. So can you, 
can you share with us about your journey specifically around motherhood and pregnancy loss and wherever you want to begin? I know it's a giant story, so. Sure. Yeah. And Emma, I just wanted to also thank you for using the word pregnancy loss or baby loss because many people, well, of course, we are, we are socialized to call what I and many women, one in three at least, go through as a miscarriage. And I'm an etymology geek. And the etymology of miscarriage actually means mistake or error or misbehavior, which puts blame onto the mother. So it's real important for me to use the words baby loss and pregnancy loss. And essentially, to make a long story very short, when I hit age 40 and I was not yet partnered or or, um, a mother, it was really time. It was past time in many ways. And I set out on about an eight-year journey through my 40s to become a mom. And I went through three baby losses of very, very wanted babies. I had partnered initially with a man who was very, very open to making a baby with me. And I went through at about week 15, a, an unbelievably traumatic and gruesome birthing of my dead baby who I named Izzy little girl and that was a 16-hour ordeal that I did all by myself my partner was was mostly there but rather dissociated and um, my midwife said oh you can do this by yourself and I had no idea was what I was in for and um, that experience changed me in ways that I, I quite frankly never had words for, which is where my art practice comes in. Um, and after that, I tried many, many more times to get pregnant, different partner, and went through another baby loss at 13 weeks. Um, and then another one around nine weeks and never got to become a mother of a living child. I, I consider myself, as you know, a mother without children. But truly, what I went through was an ultimate hero's journey. Now, Joseph Campbell, I call it a shero's journey as a woman and a massive apprenticeship with grief which is uh, something Francis Weller, somebody that I love who writes about grief, talked about. And I went into one hell of an unprecedented, unthinkable series of losses and um, that really created an unbelievable break inside of me that uh, just about took me down and out and ended really with my discovery or my return, I mean, not just, but a discovery and or return with knowing that I had to, had to, had to 
get a hold of my mind or I didn't want to be on this planet anymore. And that's when I returned to my relationship with the Dharma, with the Buddhist practicing, Buddhist path. Mm. Yeah. I'm just, I'm sort of lacking words right now, Meryl, as I just feel you and um, Mm -hmm. the intensity of what you've lived through and how much you've had to face these unthinkable losses over and over again. Yes. I feel our mutual tears here. I have them too. Yeah. I have so many questions, Meryl. Does it feel okay if I find my way with them? Please. Okay. We'll find our way together. Yeah. I'm curious about that dark time and eight years. I mean, eight years of longing, trying, disappointments, excruciating pain. Like that's, that's almost a decade of life. Yeah. So I know it's it's probably hard to capture, you know, because there were so many different parts of it. But what were some of the things other, I hear the Dharma practice, but like what, supported you during those years what mm-hmm. what did you turn to yeah that's a uh, a great question and I've thought about that a lot you know what did I turn to I turned to the wisdom of grief and grief is definitely something that in this culture, in my opinion, is very sterilized. And in many, many other cultures, it's not. You know, I think about the, the Irish practice of keening, where literally it is said that people who keen, they, they wail, they sing a lament to that which is lost. And I had studied for years with the late... Saban Fusome of Blessed Memory from the Daguerre tribe in West Africa. And she and her then husband, Maladoma Some, who was still an active teacher of mine, a beloved teacher of mine, had been sent to the West to teach their ways. And, and one of those ways is about grieving, that in their culture, a grief ritual is literally held daily because they get that the well-being of their society and the well-being of each human depends on their ability to grieve. So what I turned to first and foremost was grief. And I already had come into this life with a propensity for not being afraid of my dark emotions and my powerful and strong emotions and knowing how to go deep. And also, so so allowing myself to completely go into the dark. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was one thing. The other thing is that I allowed myself to get really, really angry, Mm -hmm. to get really angry at God, at spirit. I remember coming home from my second baby loss. I was at the ultrasound appointment with my partner holding my hand in this dark room and I knew something was wrong. The doctor was looking at the screen and he said, I'm so sorry, Meryl. 
you're going to have another loss. And I wailed. And I came home and I went to my altar, which is so beautifully sitting right here to the left of me. And I just, I just took my arms and screamed and threw everything off my altar. And I hated God. Yeah. I hated spirit. And I'll never forget my friend Ketriella saying to me, you just need a new God. Mm. Um, I engaged in ritual. Now, Maladoma talks about rituals being a way to bypass the psyche. And I, I called my women around me. You might have even been there. Yes. And I called women around me and I let myself move and scream and grieve and cry, knowing that what I was doing in some ways is very unsanctioned and uncomfortable for a lot of people. My grief was too much for a lot of people. Yeah. Because this culture doesn't recognize that, you know, as Francis Weller says, it's raw, it's feral, it's riotous. But I, I just needed to move it out of my body big time. And uh, art, 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 art. I'm an art therapist, I'm a maker of art, and I slashed and ripped and burned pages. I painted with my blood, my menstrual blood. I went full throttle into creating an altered book of my journey of those eight years of loss. And uh, there's a <laughs> Mr. Rogers who I just love Mr. Rogers. I'm from Pittsburgh and <laughs> he's, he was from Pittsburgh and he, he said, look for the helpers. When, when you're in danger, look for the helpers. And art was my helper. Yeah. And I think about how many art therapists talk about how in times of challenge, it is the art that affirms our life. Sean McNiff mm. uh, said that. He's an art therapist. Can you, that, can you repeat that and then say more? That feels incredibly powerful. Yeah. I mean, he actually said that we turn to art in challenging times to experience the transformation of a difficulty into an affirmation of our life. I love that, the affirmation of our life. Yeah. You know, and I have this altered book that I um, brazenly titled Because Not All Women Get to Be Mothers Oof, of Living yeah. Children. And yes. that, that, that altered book has been in various art shows, but it was, it is an affirmation of my life. It's a tangible, it's a talisman that you can hold in your hands, that I can open and close, that chronicles through me altering the book, adding, subtracting from the actual book, an affirmation of my journey. Yeah. Through hell. Yeah. Totally. You went through absolute hell on earth. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And thank God for the Dharma. You know, there was a point there, Emma, where I was sitting there one day and I just knew if I don't get a hold of my mind, I can't do this life anymore because my entire belief was that my purpose was to become a mother. Mm. To mother. You know, we, we were raised as women with this 
kind of trajectory in this culture that says you grow up, you you meet somebody, you get married, you buy a house, you have a baby. And I wasn't one of the few things in my life that I never got to achieve. Yeah. And given that, and that's when I found myself uh, delving into working with my mind through Buddhism, which, wow, changed yeah. everything. So really a, a lot of different pieces coming together that helped. Yeah. I'm, I'm so touched and so grateful, Meryl, that you had so many different pillars of support and practice that you were willing to lean into. And I feel curious for any, for the women who are listening, anyone who might be in one of those really dark passages right now, who maybe doesn't feel as aware of what the options are or doesn't know where to start because the grief is so overwhelming. How would you recommend someone figure out that first or second step for themselves? That's great. I think the the first thing I want to say about that is that I consider myself a grief warrior and a grief activist. And to remember that, why do we grieve? We grieve because we love. And we lost something that we love. And so to withhold grief is to withhold the heart. And I would say, allow yourself to grieve is the first thing. Now, ideally, we grieve in community. Yes. Just like in the Daguerre tradition in Burkina Faso with my teachers. But in a, in a culture that sterilizes grief, it's possible to do it alone. You can take a bowl of water and put it in a sacred place. If you have an altar or you don't, you light a candle, you sit with a bowl of water, and that water symbolizes your tears and movement and flow. And make time to grieve, whether or not you're just sitting or you're crying or you have one friend that you can have come over or you have a pad of paper and you're scribbling or moving your body. To, as much as you can, Allow what is in the body, which is grief, to move itself out. If that's not comfortable, move your body. Go for a, a hike or lay on the ground and, and get a sense of where the grief is in your body. How am I holding it? What needs to happen? What does it want? I love all of those curiosities because it's, And I I feel the shamanic aspect of you there too. It's like relating to the grief with respect as a living being thing Mm, that's separate from self. Mm -hmm. That's, I love that perspective, Emma. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Grief is such an alive emotion. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. There is nothing quiet about grief, right? It, It is very, very alive. And I'm so touched. I got full body chills, Meryl, when you talked about the connection between love and grief. Mm -hmm. Because I think we do have such an issue in our culture with grief or what we might call excessive emotion or expression, you know, but but we all want to be loving and we want to be kind and we want to wave our love flag. But it's it's like we can't have one truly without the other, without being comfortable with the loss of it all, too. 
Exactly. And I cringe so much when people use the word strong, when they say be strong to somebody who is grieving, to a Mm -hmm. griever. Because really what that means is don't cry so much or only cry a little bit or get it together. And I just cringe with that. Because to me, being strong is feel everything that is in your heart right now and express it. Mm. You'll, you will come out on the other side. I'm living proof of that. And I see it all the time in my practice. Chills again, Meryl. It's, yeah, feel everything in your heart. That, like that redefining of strength. Yes. As mm-hmm. being willing to embrace the full spectrum of our feeling self. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So Meryl, I mean, this, you shared about how you had always imagined being a mother and, you know, all these different steps, you know, partnership, mother. How have you made meaning? Like, how have you made meaning as you've wrestled with God and with spirit? And how have you done that for yourself? And where are you today in terms mm-hmm. of your understanding of your journey? <laughs> Oh, what a good question. How have I made meaning? I haven't, Emma. I can't say I have fully made meaning of it. I, I, I think about it a lot. I, there's this part of me that, and it's probably informed by my Buddhist self that just says, you know, some things just are. Some things just happen, period. And Of course, I asked why, 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 which is a natural question. We are innately born to ask why, right? Children, why, why, why? And I hear it all the time with women who come to me in my private practice who have endured baby loss, pregnancy loss, stillbirth, have lost a child, or any kind of untenable grief. Why? And when I was in my Shira's journey, I finally got to a point where I got that asking why was a normal question, but there was never going to be a satisfying answer. Mm. And it was a one-way ticket to more suffering for myself. Because no answer was going to suffice, right? And all sorts of people wanted to inundate me with their reason for the why. Oh, it wasn't in God's plan. You know, these platitudes. Oh, you just weren't supposed to be a mother. Well, they meant well, but none of those made a difference. It just is. So so there's that. How did, I just have to pause there because I think this is such important awareness for all of us as community members. How did those types of statements make you feel? Terrible terrible. And I, and I think they're meant, they are meant to be kind and well. My sense is they are more about somebody's discomfort with what to say to an unspeakable loss. Yeah. Or in a, people being afraid of my grief in that example. Mm-hmm. But really, to just say to somebody, I can't imagine how you must be feeling. And I'm so sorry. 
how can I be helpful? That, that to me would be way better than the many, many platitudes that were offered to me. Now, I remember, <laughs> you know, I, I really see an opportunity in my journey to be a social activist around baby loss and around stillbirth because women don't talk about it. Society doesn't talk about it. It goes into the shadows in the same way that women's periods do, yeah. in the same way that menopause does. And I was at the gym one day and I ran into somebody I hadn't seen in many years and he and his wife were standing there and they're like, oh, hey, Meryl, what's going on? And, you know, just chit-chatting. And he says to me, so you don't have kids? Why in the world? Why didn't you want to become a mom? What's up with that? Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and I, I did not do this to be unkind. I did this because it was one of those moments that I'm talking about. And I said, well, actually, I lost three babies through baby loss. And they did not know what to say. Yeah. And I left that interaction feeling empowered. I felt a little guilty. But really, the guilt to me is just uh, an emanation of, of these ways that the messaging around don't talk about this come out. Exactly. Like, don't make other people uncomfortable. Right. Just sort of suck it up or swallow it, as opposed to thinking about, well, maybe he should have been more mindful in that moment and not posed a question like that. And I get asked that question all the time, Emma. Wow. Why didn't you want to have kids? Gosh, I would, in 2020, I would just hope and think, I guess, falsely that people would have more awareness, you know, because we are in a time where there does seem to be more openness around infertility issues or IVF, all of that. But I think what you're pointing to is people still don't want to kind of acknowledge that pregnancy loss and baby loss happens. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I even love that my beautiful mother has learned too, through me, people will ask her often, why didn't Meryl have children? And my mother will say a similar thing. Yeah. Well, Meryl, I so deeply appreciate your activism in so many categories, but I have learned so much from you and my awareness and sensitivity and ability to be mindful with women has dramatically increased as a result of your willingness Mm -hmm. to speak up. So I, I'm very grateful. And, you know, even this whole terminology of mother without children yes. feels so imperative that we have that in our, in our vocabulary box, you know, because, yes. because you experienced motherhood. I did, Emma. And to not have a phrase like that be more normalized, it really erases so much of your experience and other women who have gone through similar things. Thank you so much for getting that. I feel so deeply seen around who I am when I hear you say that. Meryl, are there things that you wish you would have had 
more of, more access to, more exposure to in those eight years? Yeah, I do. I I wish that, I really wish that I could have been transported to a culture that, where grief was something you just do. And in lieu of that, that I would have been surrounded by more people that were more comfortable with the grief that I was going through. I wish that a circle of women who had been through the kind of loss, losses that I had gone through would have been there. I've often had well-meaning women because so many have had baby losses say to me things like, I know what you are going through, but they have a child at home, a living child. I don't, uh, haven't met many people who have had an experience like I have. So I wish there would have been more of that. Um, more ritual. I, I think ritual is incredibly healing. And after the death of my daughter, my first loss, we buried her and did a funeral, which is something I want to say to all women who have a loss. Name that baby. Bury that baby. Do a ritual. And can you, can you say more about the importance there? Because if I'm a woman listening who's, you know, in one of these unthinkable losses, I could totally imagine the impulse to just, like, naming it is way harder or burial or ritual is way harder. Why would you encourage that? Yeah, and I want to I want to say there that of course everybody is different, right? Every everybody is different and needs something different. And for some women that will work. For some women it won't. I can say that for me being able to mark the various points of one's life on the timeline of big events feels important. What I've watched happen, at least in my practice, is just one sample, is that the women who have not in some way ritualized really at some point in their life find the need to do so. I'm working with a woman right now who is five years after a stillbirth and um, it's just now we're, we're planning a ritual together to honor that baby because her grief has not budged and ritual can really be something that helps with that. So even if ritual is as simple as lighting a candle, this happened to me or um, buying a piece of jewelry or that that is marking of something that one has gone through. It doesn't have to be big and elaborate. It's, it's just something that I believe in deeply. Thank you so much for, for naming this, for, for being such an advocate of of ritual, Meryl, and giving us examples of how it can be accessible and doesn't have to be fancy or we don't have to have a teacher, but that we can ritualize things. And 
I love what you said in the beginning of the conversation about how Maladoma Somme talks about ritual as bypassing the psyche because yeah, great. Mm-hmm. I am such a guilty party when it comes to, you know, trying to intellectually analyze and get my way through hard things. And sometimes we need a different pathway and it feels like ritual is really an invitation for that. Right, exactly. And I also think about Martin Buber, um, who talked about the I-thou relationship with spirit, really with God. And if I'm going to rage, why, why, why? There's got to be a thou out there. Even if I don't know what that thou is, I'm calling to something. And so for me, ritual is calling out to that thou as well. I love that. Okay, you're gonna, did you know that I um, focused on Martin Buber and my bat mitzvah speech? Oh, I did not. I love that. Yeah, he. I had a super. Uh, Of course, you did. Yes, and a very progressive, amazing woman (laughs) rabbi helped me with my bat mitzvah, and Martin Buber. I haven't really like looked into him or investigated him since, but he was central to my bat mitzvah speech. That's fantastic, Emma. (laughs) But revolutionary for a thirteen-year-old to be into Martin Buber. I love it. Exactly. But I love that (laughs) I-thou relationship. And I mean, it it feels like it's related to so much of what we're talking about, but this, this relating, the the being Mm -hmm. with the, the exchange and the two-way street of grief or ritual or the unseen world, or, you know, if, if there's been baby loss, pregnancy loss, like being in relationship with that thing, even if it's gone and no longer tangible. You got it. And that stuff lives in our bodies. Trauma, so, you know, trauma, our life stories live in our bodies and we have an opportunity to move them out through these various means, ritual, art, movement, whatever it is for a person. Mm. So and all of those things are ritual to me, can be. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So Meryl, how, because I'm just, you're talking about ritual and these import, the importance of kind of marking these different parts of time or experience. And I'm curious, as you've twisted and turned, ebbed and flowed with your grief and your losses, how have you known when you've, I don't, I don't even like the term broken through, but, but kind of evolved or integrated or healed at a next level? Not that the grief ever goes away or the loss ever goes away, but. Yeah. I, it's interesting because many people are familiar with the model of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who, you know, is the most well-known for um, a sequential kind of hierarchical model of healing in grief. And thank God for her. She put it on the map as far as grief, but that doesn't actually it doesn't work for me. And I don't, I don't like to use her model as a stage theory for grief because it's so, grief is unwieldy. It is deeply unpredictable. So for me, it's been more about listening to my body, checking in with my body. How is this for me now? How am I doing in there? And or what is my relationship 
to my story? What is my relationship to my grief? I definitely love, there's a quote by Pema Chodron that I love, and she says, you are the sky. Everything else is just the weather. And to me, it's being able to separate the sky from the weather in myself, right? So the weather being my story, my grief, my loss. The sky being the open expanse or the capital S self, the soul essence of who I am. When those two things are merged, I get a sense that there's more in me to work with. Mm -hmm. Meaning like when you can't quite separate the the sky from the weather, that's a clue that you need more support or you've, you've got to go the next level with something. Exactly. I love that. Exactly. And I don't necessarily, I think Carl Jung, maybe you know, Carl Jung said something about we don't heal, we just move on. Really? And yeah, I, 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 you know, have not looked that up and I need to do that, but I was told that once. So, you know, for all listeners out there, I could be totally wrong, (laughs) but what I agree with it, whoever said it, I agree with it. It's not that we don't, I don't think the litmus test is about coming to a destination that is called I have healed. If that's the litmus test for any kind of unthinkable loss, I believe we set ourselves up to never get there and then to be almost like a hungry ghost looking for the next thing so that we arrive and we complete something, that we feel better as the goal. What I can say is, this is part of who I am. It's marked in me, on my body and in me. And women who have gone through a loss like this may always feel the grief and loss and the pain. The difference is it's less acute. It's less searing. Yes. And that there maybe is wisdom on the other side. Maybe there are gifts on the other side. For me, there has been. This is so profound, Meryl, and I, I love the language. Maybe there are gifts on the other side, but right. but not the absolutism that, that people like to say, you know, there's always a rainbow on the other side or the silver lining, like that we actually don't get to know if we will receive gifts out of darkness. Exactly. And that kind of pressure, or like you're saying that, expectation to arrive at a place of completion or a sense of feeling healed Mm -hmm. actually misses so much of the point along the way. Exactly. Oh, I'm just feeling like so grateful for the conversation, Meryl, and, and also aware of how challenging this spot is, even for someone like me, who's, you know, a therapist and really into this being with and like accepting what is just how addicted I, we, the culture can be to getting somewhere or having things be less uncomfortable than they are. Very, very true. Yeah. We, we, uh, my very wise therapist often says to me and probably to most of his clients that our brains are built to complete a gestalt to complete a process, 
our brain doesn't like uncertainty at all. We don't want to be uncomfortable. So, of course, we want to, quote, heal. I want to be done with this. And I'm not convinced that grief operates that way. Yes, you're so on it. Say more, Meryl. What is your hypothesis about how grief operates? I know that's a big Um, question, but just from your own experience, you've had so much experience. Mm -hmm. It is a visitor. We need to apprentice with it. Again, Francis Weller, love that language, apprenticeship with grief. We need to realize that it is something that we actually carry. It's not something we put down. It becomes part of us. So it's more about learning to be with it, learning to use it for, in my case, as a muse in my creative process, in my writing, in my artwork. It's about, even if we hate it, allowing ourselves to hate it and express that we hate it outwardly. I'm, I'm feeling so much of the nonlinear as you're speaking. Exactly. And, and the feminine, you know, that, that it's, it's the, everything you're saying, the being with, the expressing, even if it's hating it, but it's like allowing it to be there mm-hmm. and allowing it to integrate and inform who we are. Yes. Yes. I am so, you know, my, my big thing in those years of wanting to be a mother, actually, I wanted to be a mother ever since I was mother to a living child, ever since I was a little girl. And that not happening, and I never got to become part of the club huge loss for me, the club of those of you who have children at home. And instead, I have become part of the club of grievers, of the unthinkable lossing, lost grievers. And I will say that through my due diligence, I feel very proud to be where I am in what I have to offer now. And what I've learned, I would not wish it upon anybody. I wish it hadn't happened, but it did. So there it is. And Meryl, I just have the most profound respect for you and how you have worked with what was yours to work with. Yeah. Truly. I mean, the way that I know you you show up for others going through unthinkable loss, your clients, people in the community, friends, like you, you carry such an incredible gift and I'm in agreement. I never wish any single aspect of this upon you and yet to witness how you have shown up and met the fire is it's, there aren't really words for what it is. Yeah, you, uh, along with many others, were in that with me in the darkest and darkest and darkest of days. So thank you for sticking with me in that and witnessing me. Yeah, I've I've grown and I've learned so much. And thank you for sticking with it. Mm-hmm. Because your capacity to stick with it is what I know also allowed others of us to stick with it because of how you were meeting it. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that's a really 
big piece to highlight for women who are in it right now is that you deserve, people deserve support and witnessing and encircling in things like this. And I think sometimes it can be easy to isolate or feel like people are worn out or don't want to show up. But I have gotten so much from being able to show up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like the gift is, goes in both directions. Right, right. And, and really what that asks of us is vulnerability. Yes. Right? That I'm going to take the risk to let you see my most, wow, my, my darkest, most raw, festering places and trust that I don't have to take care of you in that. And that, that you can trust that I know that I'm okay in doing that. And that's not going to be the case for everybody. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that gift of of letting ourselves be seen. Yes. And showing up to see others when we know they're at the bottom of the barrel. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Again, ritual. <laughs> yes. Right? I mean, I'm thinking about this ritual of um of a mother without children. Yeah. And part of my social activism comes in the form of noticing how many rituals we do for expectant mothers. We do baby showers, we do blessing ceremonies, we do X, Y, and Z ceremonies, but there really aren't rituals out there for people like me mm-hmm. until there was with fantastic women's group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you want to speak to what that ritual gave to you or how it supported you in your healing Mm -hmm. journey? Yeah, I, um, I really needed to, again, mark, mark the profundity of what I had been through and the enormity of what I had been through. There was something in my system that was, needing something more, something special. And also really in my own informal research around the subject of mothers without children, just being quite quite shocked that in this Western culture, there aren't rituals. So really I, I put this out to you and the other women in, in our women's group. I'd like to try this. I want to see what happens here. And the, the collaboration of that was, was wonderful. Knowing that there could have been things that were said that were wrong, that would hurt my heart, and, and folding all of it into this gorgeous ritual where I told my story, and I was honored, and I wanted my belly to be decorated with henna, my womb space. So many women in, in baby showers and ceremonies have their, their belly cast or henna on it. Um, I felt honored. I felt seen. I felt understood. I felt that something came to completion in me mm-hmm. with that ritual. It was life-changing. Wow. I love 
knowing that and holding that and and it's also a testament to to what you advocate for with ritual like that there's this way where these non-linear spaces can support healing and completion it's not a guarantee but it's worth a try if if someone's tried a bunch of other things you know to to right. see what else could shift from that mm-hmm. yeah and my hope is that that in a in a societal slash cultural change that other women will go to the women in their lives who have experienced any kind of massive loss, baby loss, pregnancy loss, whatever it is, and say, what can, you know, can we do something for you? How about we do a ritual for you mm-hmm. to honor you? Yes. I would love to see that. Oh, that's a great piece of activism to stand behind, you know, just to be, to be different with one another and to really extend and be tracking those things and showing up Mm. more. Yeah. Yes. So Meryl, I know you have published, I believe it's two chapters now in compilation books. Is that three? Okay. Can you tell us, because, well, maybe I'll back up for a second and just say that another thing that really inspires me about you is is how much you use your own suffering, your own learning, your own personal experiences. And then pretty seamlessly, I would say from the outside, are then integrating that into how you serve and show your show up for your clients and community members, but also how you teach. Um, so I'm just wondering if you can share with us about what you've written in these pieces. And then I know you're also working on a book. So can you share with us about that? Yes. Um, yeah, I've contributed to three different books, all in the art therapy milieu. And one of them was about some work that I have done, my goodness, for about 20 years in a community art studio program for Naropa University. The second one was about the integration of art therapy with the body in terms of me being a certified Hakomi therapist and what I call somatic art therapy, which is really what I do, the engagement of the body with the creative process of making art. And this last chapter is in my mentor and colleague Nora Swan Foster's book called Childbearing, Art Therapy and Childbearing Issues. And I wrote about what we're talking about. I wrote about the meeting of ritual, grief, somatic art therapy for baby loss. And it included a case study and then my own story. And my book is about mothers without children. Mm-hmm. It is going to be what I would call a teaching memoir. I love that. Really, my story as well as the wisdom and learnings that I have culled from my story, a lot of which we have talked about in greater detail. I'm so excited for when that book comes out. And so would it be fair to say that the the chapters... Anybody could read them, but they're more geared perhaps toward people who have an interest, either are practicing therapists or very familiar with the field, whereas the teaching memoir would be more generally consumable by any person who wants to read it. Absolutely. Okay. We'll make sure to have links in the show notes to all of that. Well, that means I have to get my book done, Emma. 
Yes. Well, yeah, we'll have <laughs> we'll have a link to to your website and then people will know how to hear when your book comes right, out. Right. Right. As an artist who does both visual art and writing, what have you noticed about how your creative outlets support the healing process? Mm. Yeah, you know, for me, it's about catharsis and release from my body. And if I don't make things, whether it is art, visual art, or writing, I feel quite clogged inside. And so it helps in my healing in that way. There are things that happen in the day-to-day life of being human that sometimes catch me off guard that I never even thought about around my own journey that I need to write about. And so the writing really allows that to happen. It's so beautiful. I, I attended a writing retreat right before the pandemic began with Danny Shapiro, who's written a number of um, very successful memoirs. And she said a couple of things that struck me. One was, I wrote to save my life. Mm-hmm. And I didn't set out to help people with mm-hmm. my writing. I set out to understand what was happening. Wow, oh, that's so great. And I uh-huh. inadvertently helped people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And both of those things really helped me in my development as a writer because just thinking about how but through the act of writing, we make meaning or we make sense or we digest or put pieces together that sometimes we otherwise can't if there isn't a place to do that. Exactly. And and whether we're talking about writing or art, for me, it's a medicine for the soul. Yeah. And you know, particularly as a visual artist, when I think about was Howard Zinn, the activist who would talk about the importance of the artists because we we show visually what is happening in the world. Think of mural projects, whatever it is, they are social commentary. I love that. And and that's so important. And when 9-11 happened and those planes crashed into the World Trade Centers, it was art therapy that was the treatment of choice. Wow. Because there were no words for that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a real restoration of the soul to bring it to the art. And or writing. You know, writing has its own place. For me, it's the both and. Yeah. But I'm getting like with that 9-11 example, just getting the, how essential it is, especially with the unthinkable, with the grief, with the darkness to have these nonlinear channels for working it through. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm. So Meryl, I know we're winding down here with our time. And I know that you just had a really big birthday. and I'm wondering if you can tell us about that and just in a really present-centered way where you find yourself today Mm -hmm. and what you know about yourself as a grief warrior today. I love that. 
I turned 50 and I love that I turned 50. I, I feel like 50 is very good. Um, there's a way that I feel like somebody gave me this reflection the other day. Um, my therapist, he said, you know, you're, you're like a really well-aged bottle of wine at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you totally are. And uh, I do. I feel well-seasoned and uh, really feel like in a very humble way, a sitting back, a knower or a keeper of a lot of wisdom from what I've been through. There, there's a way that I care less about many things that would have bothered me in my 20s, my 30s, even my 40s. And um, I, I really like it. I, I, I feel like I have a lot to offer from where I sit now. Oh, yes, you do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you totally do. <laughs> Thanks. I, I love hearing about these qualities, Meryl. They sound really it sounds really freeing. It is. That's really well said. It is very freeing. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about your birthday because I think it's so important for us as women to hear about different junctures where there might be a lot of cultural conditioning around oh, yes. value or worth or grief and loss as it pertains to the life cycle. And, and I tell you this every time I see you, but you inspire me. <laughs> Seriously, like you are just a gorgeous representation of 50 um, in terms of how you hold yourself, how much you are alive and everything you're saying, you know, the wisdom that you keep and, and also share with us in the world. Uh, it's such a gift to receive your personhood. Oh, thank you, Emma. Yeah. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So Meryl, my last question is, if you were able to send a message to women who right now are in a very dark low, Mm -hmm. in the depths of grief or anger or despair. What would you want them to hear? Mm. What I would want them to hear mm. several things. I would want them to hear that their grief or their low or their dark has life force in it. It has movement and body in it. And even if you can find, even if it's the size of a grain of sand, a drop of that life force or someone can come and help you find that, there is movement that is possible, but it won't always be that way. I would say don't contain your expression. If you don't have people around you with whom you can be in that darkness, be in that grief, then do it between you and spirit. There's the I thou. Um, that there are healthy, healthy ways to move it. If you can pick up a pen 
write. If you can scribble on a pad of paper, scribble. If you need to just lay on the floor and look at the trees and move your body, then do that. And uh, we were born with the capacity to have a lot of emotion. It's an inborn quality, so emotional literacy. Find, find, find a way to be with the, the full rainbow of all the emotions. Hmm. Meryl, thank you so much for being here and more importantly for every single way that you've shown up for yourself and your journey to become the wise inspiring, soulful leader and community participant that you are. Thank you for that acknowledgement, Emma. One of the things I'm learning in my getting older is saying thank you Mm. and taking it in. So thank you. I'm taking it in. Mm. Thank you. I'm taking it in too. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm letting you be my role model. And, and may all of your listeners take it in. When, as my grandfather used to say, with blessed memory, when somebody says something nice to you, say thank you. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And I would add, like, when somebody extends out their hand when somebody offers anything, even if it's a listening ear, receive it. Indeed. Agreed. Thank you, Meryl. I love you. I love you right back, Emma. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and take a moment to leave a rating and a review. The more five-star ratings this podcast gets, the more easily women around the world will be able to access this valuable information. Remember, we each have our unique role to play in this collective uprising for women all over the world. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself in this moment, there is a deep intelligence to your particular place in the wider web, and we need the specific experiences, insights, and gifts that only you carry. I am sending you my heartfelt strength and support for wherever you are on the journey, and I'll look forward to connecting again next week.